You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. It's the finals. We're in the middle of the finals. After every game I want to record, but then I practice getting my heart rate back down from 190 and pass out <laughs> at the end of the evening. Um, the, the laughs you hear are from someone I wanted to get on today's show because I've been immersed in his work through a bunch of this series. It's actually been something I've been thinking about consistently in this series, and that is the shot quality that each team has. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. But in general, when I, think of a, when I think of a playoff series, I talk about this all the time. We've got small samples. We've got noise. We've got luck. We've got variance. And so sometimes you watch a game and the home team wins, you know, 121, 110. They win by 11. And it, it's kind of in line with the quality of the looks each team was getting. But that's what you're really looking for early in a series if you're trying to figure out adjustments that are going to be made or need to be made or the direction of the series and how teams are exerting their strength and their success on the court relative to each other. So um, enter the concept of shot quality in small samples. And as I said last episode with Seth Partnow, uh, I was not aware of any really good public models who were taking into account a ton of the kind of variables that have historically been very hard to take into account until now. Lo and behold, <laughs> brought to my attention right after that podcast is a shot quality metric developed by this man all the way from New York, uh, Simon Gertzberg. Welcome to the show. <laughs> that was an unbelievable intro. I, I got to say, I've been... Um... I've been a huge fan of the show since I can't even remember. I mean, I, I'm still a college student now, but watching your videos, I mean, I mentioned this all on our phone call the other day, but watching your videos, listening to your podcast, and even going back to that podcast you had with Ben Falk over a year ago, like that podcast itself was so integral to the actual development of shot quality, that's using so utilizing bottom-up approaches right. and all that. Yeah, that's, that's really cool to hear because uh, – I've wanted something like this to exist in the public space, and you've gone out and done the legwork. And so let's just jump right in because we are going to talk about shot quality with some of these players and some of the games as the series has progressed. I do want to frame a lot of my thoughts that I'm having as we head into game six through that lens. But first, it's going to help to understand just what it is you've done here that's captured essentially what, what I described uh, to you the other day as a, as a step forward in a lot of the way the public kind of view, views shot quality models. Um, give us the high level overview of what the heck this thing is doing when we go to your site, when we see your tweets, shot qual quality stuff, like what are you actually capturing um, in this model that makes it basically more accurate than everything else that I think is in the in the general public sphere. 
So simple enough, like before I get into like background and how it all started, I'd say it evaluates the individual shot making ability of each player in each area. That is the most integral part, I think, of a shot quality model because a Chris Paul off the dribble mid-range is such a higher efficiency number than a Alfred Payton off the dribble mid-range. I usually use that example because I'm a Knicks fan, so I, I've, seen, <laughs> I've seen too many of those. Um, <laughs> Condolences early, yes. <laughs> um, but utilizing just not only the individual shot making ability, but the overarching team variables that are incorporated are huge, huge, huge for a shot quality model. So we utilize stuff like offensive rebound potential and the percentage chance that the team will actually secure an offensive rebound chance on that play. The chance that a foul will be called, the chance a turnover will occur and using utilizing all these variables to then therefore quantify for the team level stats and then as well as the player level stats as well right so uh, the the key there that i that i think is um kind of a must have to really Mm -hmm. add the precision that we want to use to have conversations like we're going to have in a minute is it's based on each individual player's performance in the past and it's based on his team's performance in the past when you look at these kinds of plays whether you're looking at threes uh, mid-range jumpers whatever it is Yes, exactly. exactly. Awesome. Um, okay, quickly. However, I mean, we don't we don't have to get our um, blackboards out and start <laughs> writing Greek math equations, but uh, sort of quickly. Any other high level details that you think are important to know for folks about how you've set this up to be? Um, I think it's quite. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Not not necessarily predictive, but. Your your shot quality, you were telling me the other day before we were recording that depending on the differences in shot quality, you're going to have a really good idea of who won, even though no one's giving you access to whether the points actually were scored or the ball went in. Exactly. So I think the best example of the playoff so far, if we're just jumping in quickly, like the game two where the Bucks dominated the quality of possessions. Basically, they lost by 10. But based off the quality of shots they got, they were expected to win the game 88% of the time just based off the historical shot quality model. So that – when I posted that, was just an obscene stat because if you think about it, Suns are down 2-0. Like what the hell are you talking about, Simon? Like this makes no sense. But it's just looking at the history of the quality of shots. I believe they shot like 20% from three that game. I think – I don't even remember the details, but I believe – let me look quickly. You can, um, look, you can look up the details on your wonderful site. <laughs> Let me do it quickly. Shotquality.com, aptly named. <laughs> yeah, so in this game, basically, the Bucks were expected six more points on finishes around the rim and four more points on mid-range, while the Suns had a ton, a ton of negative regression that they were due for, just t- shooting way over-expected. I believe they shot 50% from three in this game, which is obviously way over-expected for the shots that they were actually getting in this game. So... It was kind of the perfect example and the perfect storm where you don't you get great shots and they don't fall for the Bucks, and then in the future they win the next three games because they're getting similar quality of shots, and this time they are falling. So that was kind of like the predictive nature of it. And so that's what jumped out to me uh, in terms of just being attracted to this model and and really getting this on my radar. Where I started to go through the film of those first two games and the first game. Per your model, the Suns were expected to win the first game. And I think in the first game, in particular, Phoenix's pick and roll jumped out to me as being successful. Uh, I didn't love P.J. Tucker on Chris Paul. I've, I've discussed this before. But it was really the second game where 
huge chunks of the game felt like the Bucks were much more effective than they were in game one. And yet the final score of the game kind of ended up being similar. And a lot of people, whether it's on Twitter or as you said, you're just like the casual, you wake up the next morning, it's 2 nothing, two easy home wins. Uh, that threw me a little bit because what I was seeing on film was the Bucks starting to have much more success on a possession-to-possession basis. And that's the kind of thing, not, even, not only in a series, but in a game. Like when I turn on game six tomorrow... And I evaluate the first quarter, especially the first quarter. I almost don't care about the score. Like, it matters from a probability standpoint if you already start the game and, you know, you're, you're riding a horseshoe luck streak, right? And you hit seven threes in a row. That matters. But just last night's game, game five, may have been the perfect example of this, where it was 32 to 16. And in the group chats I was having in my live notes, I just thought Phoenix was on fire. And I was like, this still kind of looks like a game that the Bucks are doing a lot of the things they did in games four, in games three. And I think the surprising one for a lot of people is in game two as well is really where it started. They just shot unnaturally, you know, below their expected uh, value on their shots. And the Suns did the opposite. They shot up above their head and therefore it flips the entire game. Exactly. Yeah, no, the, I was watching that and thinking the exact same thing. I, <laughs> I, like, I was like, what should I tweet out right now? Because this is like – I could see like the angry Bucks fans like trying to like attack me on Twitter when they see this. But like it was just like obvious that they were going to come – not obvious because things happen sometimes. Well, if you, tweet, if, if you tweet it's obvious, you will, you will be attacked. So that is easy <laughs> to predict. Yes. Keep going. <laughs> and the truth is that like those unnatural aberrations for a quarter like when they're up 32-16 – there are some games where that continues the entire game. I actually remember a Nick Buck game at the beginning of the season where the Bucks. it was one of the craziest shot quality games I've ever seen in my entire life. Basically, the Bucks essentially lost the game by 20 to the Knicks. But based off the quality of shots they got, the Knicks were supposed to win the game by 20. <laughs> so that would be a perfect storm example where basically the quality of possessions in the game had no indication of the actual result. And weird stuff like that happens all the time. But most of the time with your model, uh, if you say win a game by or you win the shot quality battle by 15 expected points. So you look at one team, you expect them to score 115 on their shots. You look at the other team, you expect them to score 100 um, in your model. When you have a difference like that, you the, the team with the advantage wins the majority, like almost all of the time, right? Yeah, so that example you just said, 15 shot quality points or more, you win the game 95% of the time. So it's basically a lock. That Nick Buck game that I just gave that example for, the Bucks win that game 98% of the time. That was just like the craziest aberration in, in NBA all season. So that was just a rarity, obviously. One question I get all the time is, what is the best way for me to move into basketball as a career? Media side, analytics, whatever it is. And the single best recommendation I always have is Sports Business Classroom. Mike De La Rosa, the Thinking Basketball video coordinator, went through SBC, as did Rob Antle. He runs our community Discord and now works in sports. They are both alums of this program. And if you don't know it, SBC is an immersive program at the NBA Summer League, right in the smack middle of it, in the Thomas and Mack Center, that basically gives you a professional crash course 
in breaking into pro basketball. There's analytics instruction, film study, basketball operations, the media side, and it's a great way to network with people already working in the league and covering the league. There are former players, former front office members. They have former GM Ryan McDonough, Seth Partnow, Kirk Goldsbury, and many more. And I have a great deal right now for anyone interested in this. You can get $200 off with the promo code THINKINGBASKETBALL when you sign up at sportsbusinessclassroom.com. It's www.sportsbusinessclassroom.com. SBC runs from August 9th through August 14th at Summer League. If you sign up before August 1st, you get early registration pricing. And of course, Thinking Basketball promo code will give you $200 off. Head on over to www.sportsbusinessclassroom.com. And as always, supporting our sponsors is a fantastic way to help support this show. All right, so... That's the sort of high-level 30,000 view of the series, 30,000-foot view of this series, where uh, as the series has progressed, I think Milwaukee... And for me, it's the defense, right? I don't know if you have those numbers offhand, but it's... Actually, I pulled them. I have them offhand. Um, the (laughs) The Suns expected points per shot, points per possession in your model. And and should we mention that your model includes... Uh, as part of this, like a turnover, right? Free throws, like all these things are part of a used possession. Um, The Suns in game one, as we said, uh, were expected to score 123 points per possession or one uh, offensive rating, excuse me, 1.23 points per possession. As the series progressed, we had them down to 111, 111, and in game four, game four was actually the most lopsided game in the series by shot quality, and yet it came right down to the wire, uh, where actually the, the Suns were in a position to win the game late, leading on the actual scoreboard. So 123 down to 111, 111, and 108. Meanwhile, the Bucks, um, their offense in the series has always been good. They have not had a game under 115 in terms of expected shot quality. And their offensive rating in those second, third, and fourth games that we mentioned um, – 1.23 points per possession, 1.25 points per possession, and then in game four, 1.27 points per possession. Again, that game in your model was expected to be a blowout. So uh, good luck in in a sense for the Suns to not be down 3-1 last night. But then last night was one of those games where the tables turned a little bit. What did your What did your model say about last night? So I found this game so interesting because I walked away leaving thinking, oh, wow, the sun shot 60%. Like I was tweeting, like the sun shot 60%. So based off the quality of shots, I expect right. the Bucks to Six, win. 68% from 68, yes, three yeah. <laughs> for the Suns and over like 55% from the floor for the game. But little did I think about was the fact that the Suns missed a lot of makeable mid-range shots while the Bucks, especially Giannis, I think was one of the best examples – he was hitting like these Kawhi level step back deep mid range that you would not expect him to hit on an average basis. I think the overall stat had the Bucks expected to score seven less points on mid range, while the Suns were expected to score five more on mid range. This is your example they used with Seth the other week, basically talking about there are so many other versions of luck in basketball. It's not just specifically three point luck that drives the game and the luck in the variance. There's so many other factors, finishing at the rim luck, free throw luck, offensive rebound luck, mid-range luck. And this game was based directly on, I mean, both teams were lucky from three, 
But the mid the mid range variance was the interesting part for this game five for me. Um, I'm wondering if you know uh, we didn't talk about this yet, but I'm just thinking about it off the top of my head. You have these games on your site that it's if if the team who is expected to lose the game wins, it's yellow, right? It's coded in yellow. So if they if you out shoot someone in terms of shot quality and you end up winning it's green and if it goes the other way it's red basically what we would expect a win or a loss but when someone turns the tables like the suns did to the bucks in game two it turns yellow um what i'm wondering is a game like game five how many of those close games like if the shot quality is within two points one point three points is it 50-50? Is it kind of a coin flip? Like what, what ends up happening in the long term over the course of the season? Exactly. So if it's less than two points, a shot quality difference, there's a 50% chance. It's exactly a coin flip. Every number after that. So I think in this game it was 2.4. Yep. So it was 58%. That's just basically I, I range it from like I think intervals of two. So from two to four, it's 58%. From four to six, it's. I think like 64%. And it's just based off the history of whatever the data is saying for the NBA over the last two seasons with shot quality possessions. Yeah, and that that makes sense to me intuitively where if you roughly end up with the same kind of expected value of possessions, then there's a certain amount of noise that's going to be baked in that if when it's like one point difference, that noise is a true coin flip. As you get slightly stronger shots for one side, there's still a lot of noise in basketball. Like it's not that big of a deal for the Bucks to win the game last night when they were minus two point four in shot quality or something. But as you increase and you go to minus four, you go to minus seven, you go to minus ten, then it becomes harder to kind of outshoot your opponent with luck. Exactly. And that's why that ninety five percent example when it's fifteen or more is the most like indicative of how predictive it is. The simpler example that I'll use sometimes is basically when the team scores has a higher expected quality of possessions than the other team, they win the game 70% of the time. So that could be either a one, a one point difference or a seven point difference or 18 point difference. So 70% is usually if you get higher quality possessions than your opponent, you win the game 70% of the time. All of this is a fancy way of saying when Drew Holiday is draining mid-range fades and pull-up threes, the Bucks are extremely hard to beat. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, last thing before I, I let you get out of here, uh, Devin Booker, Chris Paul. I've been focusing in on how the Bucks are defending them quite a bit. What does your model say about sort of the kinds of shots that they're getting? Actually, you know what? Before we do their shots, because there is another part of your website that's I think directly related to this. You talk about expected pass points. Um, Talk a little bit about what that means, because I think it relates to how you can view the way the Bucks have defended both Paul and Booker, the sort of two-headed dragon of the Suns' backcourt, yep. and the expected pass points of these guys throughout the series. So the root of this is basically because I just found the assist stat to be such a bad indicator of true passing ability. Obviously, potential assists like have kind of worked its way into the common world, but not as much the box score. So the three reasons that I found the assist that just be so terrible is because it puts too much value on the shooter making the shot rather than the pass itself. A pass to a three-point shot is more valuable than a pass to a two, but obviously assist counts them equally. And then assists also ignore passes that lead to fouls drawn. So the thought process behind the shot quality assist is basically utilizing the probability the shot has of going in 
to quantify the amount of assists the player should have in the game. So when Chris Paul passes to a wide open layup to Torrey Craig, let's just say it's a dunk and he misses the dunk, let's say that has a 95% chance of going in, he'll get 0.95 of a shot quality assist on that play rather than just getting zero on the assists because he missed the wide open dunk. Of course, all of the great players and playmakers in NBA history who have been surrounded by poor shooters and um, I think of I think of Kevin Garnett's greatest peaks video where just like all of these highlights have guys missing layups at the at the end of the highlight. <laughs> um, they sorely wish that that shot uh, that that metric of assist quality uh, accounting for shot has existed for for you know more than what do you have about two years of live data up on your site is that right? Yeah, but it's only been live for less than a year now, but it's been like up on the site for two years. Yeah, cool. Um, so anyway, getting back to this, Paul and Booker, if you look at their expected passing quality throughout the series, uh, what do we see? So interesting enough, Chris Paul's been very consistent in his overall passing points created, um, from the shot quality perspective, he's been nearing around like a 16 point average to 17 point average in his total shot quality passing points created per game. Devin Booker, on the other hand, in the last three games, He's averaging close to four passing points created, but for games one and two, he was nearing 14 passing points created. That's a 10-point mm. drop-off from games one and two to the last three games of the series, which is obviously super, super significant in terms of playmaking. Yeah. No, that's 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 interesting, and I think um, some of it, of course, is him shooting more and having these huge scoring outbursts in the last few games where, by the way, you know, He's made a lot of incredible shots, but I think this is what's so helpful about the way you have your model set up. His season average is like 1.08 points per possession or something. In the last two games, he's just been right around that or slightly above it. So it's not that this is um, magical, random shot making from Booker. He's been making these kinds of difficult mid-range shots all season. I believe on your site you have him in the 99th percentile in in mid-range um, effectiveness, basically, right? So, so he's having these big scoring games, but and I think this is evident on film. They're coming from him getting these difficult shots, which he can make sometimes more than most people would, but this is not the same thing as breaking down the defense and having wide open, sort of like a wide open 10-footer that then the defense responds to, and when they respond, then you got Jay Crowder and Torrey Craig and Cam Johnson and Mikel Bridges spraying open threes off of the playmaking. It's not like he's getting layups or getting to the line. I, off the top of my head, I don't remember him taking an abundance of free throws in the last few games, and so that's what jumps out to me about this. It's like Everything within his scoring, the the story that I'm seeing here is his scoring is still operating at a pretty good clip, but it's coming from a type of scoring that doesn't lead to much playmaking, basically. Yeah, and that isolation that he's been doing more of, I think, in the last three games, that's not really – I mean, obviously, I think end of game, it changes, but the Suns were really built up like having this like beautiful ball movement, and I think that's faltered off a little bit in the last three games with a little more isolation – and um, if they're going to want to come back in this series, I think they might have to get back to Devin Booker being more of a playmaker for sure. Yeah, and I don't know how they do that per se. I tweeted that out before uh, the game last night. and I think Phoenix overall did have a more effective game, both in terms of 
the actual offensive rating, which was like 130, and the expected shot quality was back up at one. What did I say? 120 for this game after um, being around 110 for the previous three games. So I think they found more effectiveness. But certainly when you know you're going up against Drew Holiday um, on the ball, Giannis is in the screening action. Um, they've got their lineup set right. Like Phoenix, to me. They are working really, really hard to try to get something in a primary pick and roll or switch Drew off the ball handler. And to your point, I think it's a great point. We're seeing fewer of these kind of beautiful game ball movement, swing it around and attack or get the, get the defense in rotation, go to the, attack the closeout and get something off that. We're seeing less of that uh, in the last few games. And, uh, you know, game six, uh, I think if that continues, we're going to need more of that. Devin Booker splashing 35 or 40 points type of thing. It doesn't have to be him. It could be Chris Paul. But that seems to be where the Suns offense um, has kind of settled into in the last couple games. Yeah, and one stat I actually found with the Suns, which I thought was pretty interesting, the two games that they had the most drive to the basket and finishes at the rim attempts on the Shot Quality website was games one and games five, which basically were the two games that they – were the closest or actually won. Those are the two only games that they actually won the shot quality battle. So it's kind of interesting that those were the two games that they got the most shots around the rim, um, which hopefully will be something if they want to come back, they obviously want to get more of in the next two games. Or right. And I, and I think I talked about this with Seth last time. Like if, and in game one, they did have a lot of shots at the rim, but if you have a lot of shots at the rim and a lot of great three point looks, and especially a lot of corner three looks that are open, that's reflective of breaking down a defense and getting to the things you want to get to versus the numbers we've talked about in this conversation and the numbers you just cited, that's more reflective to me of what I see on the film, which is the way I describe it to friends is the, the bucks are kind of slowly choke holding the Suns, and, and what's left is still, you know, Suns still have talented players and Monty, Monty Williams is a nice coach and they got Chris Paul, on the court and they got Booker and these guys are making shots. And so it's not, it's not terrible. We're in the NBA finals here, but it's just like, what are you going to be able to get out of the pick and roll against this defense? Uh, I feel like when um, PJ Tucker is on the ball and Brooke Lopez is in the game in a drop, that's when the Suns get their best pick and roll stuff. But the rest of the time it's a chore. The Bucks, whether it's Spain pick and roll or whether it's uh, Booker coming from those gut cuts from the baseline, it's like the Bucks have those dialed in how they want to play them, and the Suns are going to get their points. But as we've been talking about here, none of it is coming that easily. Yep. No, 100%. 100%. All right, Simon, um, anything else you want to tell people about this wonderful – you've got a lot of this information for the NBA for free on your site, shotquality.com. Um, anything else people need to know about where to find your work now is the time fire away. Totally. I appreciate the plug. Um, yeah, so right now I'm just focused on really developing the product itself. So for the college coaches that I'll be pitching to the college men's and then in the next few weeks, college women's. And then in terms of the other stuff that I'll be doing, I'm actually restarting a podcast that I had with my college roommate. Um, so he's on the Colgate basketball team. So it'll be the shot quality podcast. We're, we're renaming it. It was Nerdball, which we got some negative reviews about that name. So we had, we had to switch it up now. Um, <laughs> shot quality uh, is a, it's a well-named podcast. It goes with the site and um, the brand. And look, 
we all know this. The best podcasts are made with your college roommate. That's <laughs> that's how you get it done. Exactly. And in terms of the name of the actual company, I, I honestly I'm I, I can't believe we didn't change the name to Possession Quality because like that's what it is. So like the fact that it's not called Possession Quality, I think actually throws some people off and what the product is because just shock quality really doesn't like measure up what it's actually doing obviously i appreciate that nuance but i do think for a a catchy (laughs) consumer oriented model like shock quality (laughs) is the term that has become popular over the years and and essentially this is what you're trying to capture and as we talked about um there are applications at the team level where you're looking at all this stuff holistically offensive rebounding everything like that and then we can dive in and look at individuals and kind of make really nice inferences there's a ton of stuff that you could do with this down the road but just right now even up on your site perusing around this week as i watched the film of the series to be able to say like oh yeah booker's playmaking numbers have completely dropped and chris paul we didn't even talk about this chris paul's um his individual scoring expected value his shot quality points per possession was great in game one when they had that pick and roll working and he was snaking around and all that but boy in the last three or four games it has really really fallen off and of course um, looking at the film a lot of that is drew holiday a lot of that is the bucks tightening up how they want to play pick and roll depending on who the big man is uh, defensively involved and things like that and his numbers i have them here they went from 122 to 85, 95, 82, and back to a 109, 1.09 points per scoring possession last night in Game Five. And that's that's that. Those are the two games, the ones that Chris Paul are getting the higher quality of shots were the two games that the that the Suns were favored to win based off the quality of shots. So definitely a trend there, I'd expect. Yeah, they. I would think they need a big Chris Paul game in Game Six. I mean, it's the. It's weird to me because this this series is not a series where even everything we've talked about that, you know, I'm looking at the film and the Bucks look like they're starting to get more of what they want and they should have a net advantage. And then you look at your model and it's like, whoa, the Bucks. most of the time the Bucks would be up 3-1 here. Um, it's not a series where I look at the games and the game flow and go, Milwaukee's way better than the Suns. They're, they're still similarly matched teams to me. So I don't think it's a complete, like, requisite that Chris Paul comes out in game six and smokes it but it's such a great point on your part like the two games that they've had the advantage have been the two games that Paul has been able to match that playmaking with the scoring threat get to more effective spots Um, and his like their shooting luck throughout the series both Booker and Paul has been pretty Paul's has actually been positive He's actually scoring more than you would expect based on your model, and Booker's slightly negative. So to me, especially as you get into five, six, seven-game series, it becomes about the totality of what you can expect on each possession versus are you hot for 10 minutes or not. Totally, 100%. Yeah. Of course, the Suns, as they've shown, can get hot for 10 minutes quite a bit. Um, <laughs> so, Simon, appreciate it. You know, that last point is making me think of something that we actually didn't get to, which is that the Suns, they're coming into game six in Milwaukee on Tuesday. And even if they can't create a strong shot quality advantage in this game, which at this point seems less likely to me, they can still win games where they, the numbers are close or they're expected to lose. 
And yes, some of that is luck, but it's also just guys like Devin Booker and Chris Paul coming into difficult environments and making a bunch of big time shots, the make or missness of the league, if you will. This happened already in the playoffs in the Lakers series. In the Lakers series, yes, they were up 3-2. They weren't down 3-2, but they went into game six in Los Angeles and they essentially stole that game from Booker's crazy shooting. Now, his expected shot quality in that game was not very good. It was 1.04. That's below his season average of 1.08. But he drained four, you know, he dropped 44 points in that game, plus 13 over what was expected. And he was just raining in jumpers down the stretch that became the difference between having to go back to Phoenix for a game seven or moving on and eliminating the defending champion Lakers. And that can happen. A guy can get hot and they can propel you to victory in a game. Let me, let me check what the difference was. They were expected to lose that game by eight and they ended up winning by 13. So that's a massive 21 point swing. uh, And also a game that according to this model, the the Suns would be expected to win 23% of the time. Interesting thing about that series, by the way, with the Lakers. The Suns flipped two games. They also flipped game one. They were expected to lose game one by 10. They won by nine. That's a 17% win probability. So they had, per this model, weaker shots than the Lakers in four of those six games. Hmm fascinating something to think about maybe a series to revisit maybe not game six tuesday night we'll come back after the series ends and wrap things up with another episode later in the week remember to check out sports business classroom www.sportsbusinessclassroom.com if you sign up before august 1st you also get the early registration rate as well as a 200 dollars off with the promo code thinking basketball if that's something you're interested in if you just want to directly support this show uh, head on over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball just finishing up as the season winds down a series a five-part series on playoff plus minus taking that data making more sense of it what it says historically about players the traps the pitfalls the patterns um, teams supporting cast we've done ensembles in the final installment uh, this week, we're going to do archetypes and looking look at heliocentric players and what happens in the playoffs with them and, and, and with them and things like that. So we've reached the point of the show where I can't speak anymore. That's how we know we're at the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for listening all the way until the end. I hope you enjoyed this one and that wherever you are out there, you are enjoying the finals and that you're having a great day.